Good morning, First Baptist. Today, or well, our last series, we um, were looking through and walking through all of Philippians. Uh, because we believe that all of God's Word is important for us. We just took, you know, section by section. Now we actually turn our focus to the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. Um, I'm excited that we get to spend our time over the next number of weeks walking through this book. Because we get to actually see... Uh, what was on the forefront of the early church's mind and on their hearts. And even what was on the forefront of their tongues. What was on their tip of their tongues as they went about scattered sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the book of Acts is very much a continuation of the gospels. So if the gospels tell a story of who Jesus Christ is, why he came to earth and why he died. Acts then is a continuation of that. It's people... Uh, who repent of their sins, believe in Christ, and then they go forward preaching that message, the content, namely, of who is this Jesus. So the Gospels call us to believe in that Christ. Acts then, Acts of the Apostles, shows how the church goes out with that message, calling other people to believe in Christ. And people do, in the thousands even. It's incredible. So from the book of Acts, we learn about, again, what the heartbeat of the early church was. We see what its lifeblood was. Uh, And then as we hear today, so 2,000 years later, as we look at the book of Acts, uh, we get the opportunity to see, to be encouraged, really, where our church um, matches up with the early church. And then also we have the opportunity to, to adjust our goals and expectations where we don't match up to the early church. Because what the early church was doing, I mean, it's great, we get to see what these early Christians were doing. What was really important to them in the spread of Christianity, the building or laying the foundation of the early church. So as we begin from the beginning of the church, we turn to Acts chapter 1. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. And today we see... The foundation of the church in five aspects. The foundation of the church in five aspects. Acts chapter 1. And aspect number one is the church is to be founded on the truth and crucified, the truth of the crucified and resurrected Savior. That's aspect number one. If you're taking notes, the church is to be founded on the truth of the crucified and resurrected Savior. And you see that theme. I hope you guys saw that theme, um, you know, in Man of Sorrows. And then we also see the theme in the reading of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. So we're basically taking the section that we're going to be looking at during the sermon, and then we're organizing the whole entire service around that. Uh, so even the call to worship is called to the nations to worship God, which is what we see here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this mission to go have the world worship Christ. And then in the selection of the songs, it affirms those themes. In the selection of scripture, it affirms those themes. In the way we pray, it affirms those themes. And then we arrive here at the sermon. Okay, go ahead and look at the introductory verses of uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 3. And this sermon will basically be um, not only an exposition of chapter 1, but um, also an overview of the whole book of Acts. Look there, verses 1 to 3. In the first book, O Theophilus... I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive 
after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Okay, so this here is written by the, the man Luke, who also wrote the gospel according to Luke. So Luke and Acts, that's, that's uh, Luke the doctor writing these things. And he intended fully to write history, like actual history. Okay, so turn back to Luke chapter 1, and we'll see basically how he introduces um, that book along with Acts. Okay, so we just saw Acts chapter 1. He's writing to a man named Theophilus, which basically means lover of God. Uh, so we don't know much about this man. Maybe he was an actual person, or maybe he just stood for all God lovers out there. Um, but look here, at Luke chapter 1, you see the same man come up. Um, and you also see the purpose for why he's writing Luke and then Acts. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered, it, delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Namely, the things about Jesus Christ. So what are those things? This narrative? That's a narrative of why Jesus came to earth, why he died, why he was raised from the dead. And he says that these people were eyewitnesses and they passed on things to us. And now it's an appropriate time to go ahead and write those things down. So the eyewitnesses are now dying. And then he's going to pen these things. And why is it in Acts chapter, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 1, verse 4, why is it that he wants to write these things down? You see the answer there. That you, Theophilus, or maybe all believers, might have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So here he's, he's fully intending to write a genuine historical account of this person named Jesus, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection. An orderly account. So imagine this doctor, rigorous, rigorously educated, going around, Luke chapter 1 says, following these things, investigating them, talking to the eyewitnesses themselves, and then saying, okay, we've seen it, we've heard it, now it's good that we write them down for the entire church, for you, for me. The account of the crucified and resurrected Jesus who actually was crucified and who actually rose from the dead. Okay, now turn back to Acts chapter 1. And you see there in verse 3 that this is his purpose, right? This is why he's writing these things. To them, meaning all his followers, he presented himself alive. After, after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Um, so there, you, you see he's alive. He's presenting himself to them. You see that he's, he's, uh, there are many proofs. This is why in the, the Gospels it talks about after his resurrection that he actually ate with his disciples. It's not because the disciples think that it's important that we know what Jesus' diet was. You know, he ate fish. It's that he was actually ingesting food that after he rose from the dead, he was actually there. He was present bodily. Skeptics have a problem with the resurrection, don't they? 
And let's be honest, probably some of us do as well if we're believers. Um, but I think reviewing the truths that both Christians and non-Christians believe, like they, these are the truths that they agree on, it helps us see things clearly. Okay, so let's just review some of the truths that non-Christians and Christians believe. Number one, there was a Jesus. There actually was a Jesus. Number two, this Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Number three, he was buried in a tomb, most likely a private tomb. That means everyone in the first century, like they knew that, that someone was laying in that person's tomb, a private tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, number four, soon afterwards, in, in other words, after, after his death, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent, having lost hope. So we know that they're, they're not doing well after the crucifixion. Number five, Jesus' disciples genuinely believed that he had risen from the dead and that Jesus had appeared to them. So at the very least, they're saying, okay, if we're all Jesus' disciples, as, as onlookers, all of his disciples genuinely believed that he rose from the dead. Number six, because of these events, the disciples' lives were changed. Number seven, preaching the, uh, preaching the resurrection, it took place at an early date. Um, number eight, the centerpiece of preaching was the death and resurrection of Jesus. Number nine, all of a sudden, now this one, sociologically, is so hard to argue against. In other words, that this one that I'm going to say, it argues so strongly for the resurrection. All of a sudden, the meeting day of certain Jews, right? The meeting of the day of the Jews was what at that time? Real question. The meeting day of the Jews was what day? Saturday, okay? All of a sudden... To a large number of Jews, their meeting day changes to Sunday. Like, why sociologically, how can you explain that all these, this large group of people, all of a sudden stop meeting on the day that they were supposed to be for thousands of years, and then they begin meeting on the Lord's Day, as it says in the New Testament. The Lord's Day. Why is it? Because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. So those are, those are just nine facts um, that both Christians and non-Christians would agree upon. As you're sort of analyzing the evidence for, let's say, the resurrection. Skepticism, though, okay, given those facts, skepticism then turns towards, okay, if you, if you find those facts in the New Testament and validated outside in other sources, non-Christian or Christian, the, the skepticism then lands on the Bible, doesn't it? Because if we can take this apart, then we're okay. Then you can sort of write off Christianity, for the most part, for the most part, even though non-Christian sources... Um, happily attest there was a jesus he did die his disciples did actually think that he rose from the grave um so this is where they say that the new testament is anything from embellished stories or just straight up lies but i think the evidence um argues so strongly against those things that it isn't embellishments that it is not a lie i mean think about it if you guys were to write a story and you guys just so happen to be the main characters in the story. Uh, you most likely would not have written the things that are in the New Testament. So, like, number one, the disciples include embarrassing stories about themselves. If you're going to write a story and you guys are the stars, you most likely wouldn't leave those embarrassing stories uh, about themselves. Like, they are uncaring. So sometimes they fall asleep on Jesus, right, in this difficult hour in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're thick-skulled. And they seem to have no problem holding it out to us, to readers. Yeah, you know what? Peter, uh, who said that Jesus should not die, that he would not die, he's going to do everything possibly he can to prevent it. 
Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and include that in there. Um, and in fact, Jesus calls him Satan. Yeah, I'll go ahead and leave that in there. That's really helpful for me. It doesn't seem to be that way. They're presenting the fact, these true facts, they're uncaring at times. They are thick-skulled at times. And they're cowards at times. So they run away from little girls because the little girls say, you know, weren't you with Jesus? And then they even include that they're doubters, right? They struggle to believe in Jesus even after his resurrection. Here's another thing. The writers include some embarrassing details about Jesus and uh, his hard sayings. Like, for example... um, they leave in there the fact that his own family doesn't believe in him. Why would they include those things in there if they were writing lies? And if they, you know, what kind of reasons would you have for making up stories? Maybe they wanted to have their own followers, so they're going to include all these bad things about themselves in there? Most likely, it actually affirms the reality, the truths in the New Testament. Another one, the New Testament writers leave in there difficult sayings of Jesus like, if you lust in your heart, you are an adulterer. Yeah, let's, let's, make a, let's make the bar so high that everyone automatically will fail because we know it's a lie anyways. doesn't make sense. Another one, the New Testament writers carefully distinguish the words of Jesus from their own. Like Paul says in Corinthians, he actually heard a word from Jesus about these things, and so he's relaying it to them. Or he's saying, look, I didn't hear specifically uh, these, this specific teaching, but given all the other teachings, this here is what the uh, godly authority would be. So they leave in there, oh, they're distinguishing Jesus' words from their own. So, so that's just four categories for why the writers wouldn't be writing lies and wouldn't be embellishing their stories. And that's not even looking at the reliability of the eyewitness accounts. Right, so once you start thinking about how truth was passed on in those days, it was very much by eyewitness account. You're telling, you're, t- you're relaying fact and relaying fact and relaying fact. And then, of course, you've got Luke who's saying, okay, now that the eyewitnesses are dying, now it's time to write things down. Um, if you're interested in anything about that, like wh- how is the New Testament reliable, why should we trust it, you can just simply Google this. Are the NT documents reliable or are the New Testament documents reliable? So you just go on Google, are the New Testament documents reliable? And I think the second and the third um, websites that come up, it is an entire book by that name, are the New Testament documents reliable, by a man named F.F. Bruce who's now passed away. That's a very fantastic, solid scholar. Um, And you can get the whole book on the internet. So if you're interested in that, just Google that. Are the the New Testament documents reliable? And then he goes through uh, so many different reasons why they are. Okay, so Christianity and the church is to be founded on the truths of the crucified and resurrected Savior. And these truths, the the realities of this event, these events, had a genuine impact on their lives. So... um, you know, you have to wonder, okay, is this really myth? Are they making embellishments? You know, you, you think back to the First Corinthians 15 passage that Rick read for us earlier. That is a man who genuinely believes that something happened. In other words, Jesus got up from the dead, right? So Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. Your faith is built on lies and Christ did not die. And if he did not, if he was not raised to new life, then we would not be freed from our sins. He presents that to all of his readers saying, look, 
if this didn't happen, we are fools, the worst to be pitied, of all men to be pitied, because we're building our lives on a lie. So there's, it just seems so obvious that Paul is so affected by the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a man who believed that God actually sent his son, his eternal son, not his physical son. It's not like God came down and had sex with a woman. It's his eternal physical son, the heir to everything, the one whom God installs in authority over all to die on a cross. So he takes on flesh. He lives the life that we couldn't because in our sin, we all deserve death and punishment and hell, the Bible says. But God being so loving in all of his grace and all of his mercy sends Jesus Christ to take our place. That was the solution in his grace and then in his mercy for everyone then who would turn from their sins and believe on this Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sins. We then would be forgiven. We then would have new life. We then would be freed from condemnation, freed from punishment. And all of that, that, would, that was made possible by our gracious and loving God who walked among us. That's the gospel that this church preaches, that this church believes. This is why we try and preach this gospel week in and week out from every text of Scripture. As Christ is ultimately to be found in all of Scripture. And so we're dedicated to doing this. Uh, and we want to make it really clear. And so just as the apostles did preach this message, so we do too. And just as the apostles called people to repent and believe, you know, so we do too. Which is why, why Rick was praying that those who might not know would believe and see that God is gracious and merciful and made this time an age of salvation. So the question then we should be asking ourselves is have we repented and believed? What do we think about this Jesus? Well, if that is the gospel, that's the first aspect. The church is built on the truths of the crucifixion and resurrection. This leads us to our second point. The church is a people on mission. The church is a people on mission to carry that gospel to the ends of the world, which is what we're going to see. Um, based on Acts chapter, uh, sorry, Acts 1, 8, and 9, we see the very last words of Jesus before he goes up into heaven. Look there. It is not for you to know times or seasons. Uh, actually, I'll just go ahead and start at 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when they had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So there you see the mission. The very last words of Jesus. Imagine if you were to depart from this world, what would your last words be? You begin to see what's important on your heart. What's important in your mind. And this is what was important to Jesus. What are they to do? What are they to do in this mission? Be Christ's witnesses. Proclaim the name of Christ for the glory of God until the full number of God's flock are brought in. So that you see in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, they don't really get this at first. They say, you know, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Restore the kingdom or build, establish what is broken? Are you going to restore it to Israel? So they have this nationalistic idea. And then they say, at this time, 
So they thought that that was what was primarily on Jesus' mind. And they're rebuked, aren't they? In verse 7, he says, No, a time will come, that time will come, when the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem will come down from heaven, as it says in Revelation, and Christ will establish his kingdom. But that's not going to happen until something else happens. So Jesus intentionally says, Don't think about that. I want you to think about your mission. And let me think about it. And let God the Father think about when the kingdom will be consummated. Listen to Matthew 24, 14. It says that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the end of the world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. So the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the ends of the earth as a testimony. That's the truth of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. The gospel as a testimony to all nations. So a testimony that God is merciful. A testimony that, that we have sinned. A testimony that we can find forgiveness. And that would go out to all peoples. Then the end would come. Okay, that's the what. Now the how. Now we look at the how. And the how, how are they to do it? They're supposed to do it with urgency. Okay, so look back in your scripture. Look at verse 9 again. And when they had... When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So it's what they're doing here is like they're, they're gazing they're gazing up to see their Lord ascend back into heaven and they're rebuked by the angels. Why are they rebuked by the angels? We have to ask the question. It's because this is how urgent the mission is. The mission is to go to the ends of the earth testifying of God's grace given to us in Christ. And the angels say, just get on with the mission. Jesus will come back. And we see the next chapter that he actually gives us his presence. says, don't worry, Christ will come back. You'll have Christ's presence. Get on with the mission. This here is urgency. Um, I confess that I was, I was wrestling with this text. Um, I was convicted in new ways. I think I'm tempted in this in-between time. I know Jesus is going to come back. But I'm tempted to think that um, in this in-between time, it's something that we do as we wait. So the main thing is that we're waiting... And almost the secondary thing we do is evangelize or carry out this mission. Um, But that was so wrong. It's the thing we are to do based on Acts chapter 1. It's not, oh, this is a responsibility I have as I live my life. Rather, it is the responsibility for which all life breath has been given to us. That we might be testimonies and go to the end of the earth to declare God's glory through Jesus Christ. With our mouths. Like that's what Jesus has appointed that we do. That we open our mouths and that we speak. It should cause us to live with a sense of urgency. It's what God commands. It's what his design was. And you feel that urgency. Why do you stand there looking? Just get on with it. Don't worry. Christ will, in fact, continue. Or he will, in fact, come. Okay, so we looked at the what they are to do. We looked at the how. That's with urgency. Now we look at the where. And we see, go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And this verse is actually really important, okay? So if you want to underline anything in your Bible, if you do that, underline this, that, uh, that verse, because it forms basically the table of contents for the whole book of Acts. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It forms the contents, basically, of the whole entire book of Acts. That's what we see. We see the gospel. We see the apostles being witnesses, starting from Jerusalem, and then going out to the next circle, Judea and Samaria, and then finally to the ends of the earth. Uh, so if you want a chapter breakdown, you've got chapters 1 to 7, that's Jerusalem. That's what Pastor Rick's going to preach on uh, next week. And then we have chapters 8 to 12, that's Judea and Samaria. That's 8 to 12, Judea and Samaria. And then we have 13 to 28, that's to the ends of the earth. And there, Paul was thinking Rome, the ends of the earth, Gentile world. So 1 to 7 is Jerusalem, 8 to 12, Judea and Samaria, 13 to 28, to the ends of the earth. So you see that structure. So that is the mission of the church, to be God's heralds testifying to the nations of his grace in Christ. Okay, that's the second aspect. The third aspect, the church is an empowered people. Did you notice what was required for this mission to succeed? What was required... For them, even to begin the mission, right? They're told to wait, stay in Jerusalem until what? Yeah, the Spirit comes upon them, and then you will be my witnesses. In Luke's Gospel, at the end, he calls this being clothed with power, basically heavenly power. Okay, so Jesus says, wait, stay in Jerusalem, and you will be clothed with heavenly power. But it makes sense, doesn't it? For the church to speak, and testify um, accurately about Jesus, they have to have the spirit of Jesus testifying to Jesus, right? Jesus is going to testify to Jesus. His spirit is going to testify to his person and his work. And this actually fits completely with what John says, or what Jesus says in John 14, 26. He says that Jesus, Jesus says that he's going to send his spirit who will remind you of everything that I said. He's going to preserve the message, right? And then he also says, "I'm going to." The Spirit is going to lead you into all truth. The, the Spirit's going to reveal to them what Jesus has chosen not to reveal to them. So the Spirit preserves the truth and leads us into greater truth. This is the Spirit of Christ that testifies to the truths of Christ. Doesn't alter the message, but preserves the message. So for application, when we all are afraid in our evangelism. Maybe afraid to talk about some difficult things. Let's say, um, you know, we're talking about depravity or the sinfulness of man. Or let's say we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? We know that it's hard, maybe, uh, for people to understand this. Um, and we, we're so tempted to obscure the message there, to be afraid of it, to be shy of those truths the reality, those proofs, the fact that he is alive, there I think we would say that we would not be filled with the Spirit. Right? Because the Spirit of Christ testifies to the truths of Christ. The Spirit of Christ preserves the truths of Christ and leads us into greater truths. So why then would we 
whether in fear or wisdom, let's say, feel the need to cover up some of those truths. If the Spirit of God makes these truths clear, if that's what Jesus genuinely wants to do, right? He appeared to them alive, Luke says in verse 3. And he showed them many proofs. Why would we cover up the proofs? Why would we be embarrassed to say that Jesus Christ actually rose from the grave? There, it's we are tempted to fear man and not believe in the truths of God's word and the power of God's word to convict and to convert others. You know how you can determine... Um, I know some of you guys might watch uh, uh, Christian television. And some of the stuff is good. Some of the stuff is not so good. But you know how you can tell whether or not someone is in the spirit of Christ? It's whether or not they're holding forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Same application. If the guy preaching on the television is preaching or is of Christ, then he's going to affirm the truths of Christ. We know that he's going to be in the spirit of Christ if he is making clear, uncovering for other people the truths of Jesus Christ. So then we know that we should not believe them, those who cover up those things, those who obscure those things. That's what it means to be in the spirit. And we see, uh, at least to be uh, filled with the spirit. We see the spirit in Acts, um, it plays a huge role too. So as the disciples go forward from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then finally to the ends of the earth, so we see the Spirit follow and go with the message, out forward, or in those concentric circles, go outwards. So as we see, as we walk through the book of Acts, you're going to see this phrase, baptized with the Spirit. In fact, that's what uh, Luke said, that's what Jesus says there. Look in 4 and 5, verse 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. There, we'll see that phrase come up again, baptized with the Holy Spirit. That means conversion. When one is converted, one is baptized with the Holy Spirit. So you see the Spirit go to Jerusalem. You see the Spirit go to the Gentiles, or let's say the Samaritans, which are half Jew, half Gentile. And then you see the Spirit go to the Gentiles. So it's a really unique time in the way God is moving to save people. Baptism in the Spirit comes at conversion. In other words, we ought not to expect to be baptized in the Spirit more than once. But we do ex should expect, we, do, we should expect um, to be filled with the Spirit on numerous occasions. There's a difference there. Baptism in the Spirit comes at conversion. Filled with the Spirit is something that we should regularly expect and actually pray for. But... Interestingly enough, the New Testament never tells us to pray that we be baptized in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit numerous times. So that's what we're going to see. That's the church being an empowered people, empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out this great mission. Fourth aspect. The church is a led people, and that is led by the apostles. This is found in verse 12 to 26, a very significant chunk here. Uh, look at verse 15. And I'll go ahead and read 15 to 26. Just a bit of background. They return to Jerusalem. The disciples do. They are in, in the upper room. And the disciples are there, of course, minus Judas. And it says in verse 14, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women 
and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they're praying that the Spirit would come. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of all, in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Thank you, Luke. Appreciate that one. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldema, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and that there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So there's a story about finding a replacement for Judas. In other words, scripture had been needed to be fulfilled that there would be twelve. So here what God is doing is he's reconstituting his people. No longer would it be the twelve tribes of Israel. No longer would it be the twelve tribes of Israel in reconstituting his disciples. He's more or less reconstituting his people saying no longer this. But now, anyone who hears the apostolic message of the gospel from these twelve and from the church, they are my people, whether Jew from Israel or not. So here we see this reconstitution, this early sense of this reconstitution of God's people. And we see the apostles leading the church. So Peter is really strong uh, in the first half, and then the, sh the shift focuses then to Paul the apostle. And you see these apostles standing up for Jesus Christ, and even some of the deacons, like Stephen, who get, uh, the first church martyr. So we see them leading the church. I do want to ask you, did you notice who was qualified to be an apostle? Who, according to Scripture, is qualified to be an apostle? Look at 21 and 22. 21 and then 22. So one of the men... This is how they pick. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among, uh, among us. So there an apostle would be one who accompanied them, who was able to see Jesus come in and go out. They were familiar with his ministry. And then it gets more specific in 22, beginning from the baptism of John, that is Jesus' baptism by John, until the day when he was taken up from us. So from his baptism until his resurrection and then ascension, one of these men must become with us. Okay, now we ask the question, well, why did they have these requirements? Why must that person have been, must have been familiar with the Lord Jesus' ministry and then be present in his baptism throughout until his ascension? Become with us a witness to his resurrection. 
That's why. The apostle needed to be an, a witness, an eyewitness of Jesus, and needed to be, why is that? To be a witness to his resurrection. And so you see the apostles going out for it. What are they preaching? They're preaching the doctrine. They're preaching the truths of his crucifixion on behalf of sins and then his resurrection. That's what an apostle is. Paul then later on would become an apostle because Jesus appeared to him. He appeared to him. Remember that? We're going to get to that, of course, later on. As we apply this, it, it is because of these apostolic requirements that we at First Baptist are not led by apostles. We're not led by apostles. We don't see Paul telling Timothy or Titus to appoint apostles in local churches, but elders and pastors. That's the same office. So elder and pastor refer to the same office of one who shepherds a church. It's not apostles. So if you see someone call themselves an apostle, you have to naturally ask the question, well, why? Do they actually meet up to these requirements here? Because that's who the apostles thought an apostle was, one who would join their work. So if the Bible says that we ought to have pastors and elders, uh, then that's what we ought to strive for. That's why we order ourselves the way we do. We're led by pastors or elders and not apostles. But the church at large is led and founded upon the ministry of the apostles. But more important than the who the church is built on, more important than who, is the what the church is built on. So more important than the fact that there are apostles, even though that is important, it's what the church was built on, namely the message that the apostles were preaching. Okay, if that message isn't there, that overrides someone's apostleship. It overrides their authority. So turn to Galatians 1. Here, uh, Paul writes to a church who's struggling. They're struggling to hold on to the true gospel and believe that faith, I mean, salvation comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And they're tacking on um, faith with works. And that's what equals salvation. Faith plus works equals salvation. But Paul, he just writes, he's, he's so clear and so bold about what the true gospel is. This is what he says. Galatians 1, chapter, uh, verse 6. I am astonished. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received... Let him be accursed. Who is the we? He says, if anyone preaches a gospel different than the one that we preach to you, who's the we? The apostles, the preachers. He says they are to be accursed. What overrides then one who comes with supposed apostolic authority? It's the true message of the gospel. If the message of the gospel is not there, that man has no authority. He's basically saying if you're preaching a gospel different than salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, then that person has no authority. They're not preaching the true gospel. He says even if an angel comes to you, one who comes from the heavenly realms, 
says, don't believe him if he teaches something different than the contents of this message. See how important that is? That Paul the Apostle himself is guarding a line against this body of doctrine, these specific truths. And he's going to do everything he can because salvation is at stake in people's lives, isn't it? So as we apply this again to our lives, if I preach to you a doctrine different than the gospel in here, you should fire me. You should not stand for that. Because salvation of souls is at stake. God's glory is at stake. Holding out Jesus Christ and all of his glory and all of his perfection is at stake if you start to tweak the gospel, right? So if, you, if we start preaching the gospel that salvation is by faith plus works, what does that say about Jesus' work? It's not good enough? We need to add to it? We need to make it a little bit better? No, if salvation is by grace alone, then we say that work and that work alone is sufficient to save sinners. And there's nothing I can do, nothing I could ever do to add to my salvation, to make that work a little bit better. So if I preach a message different than one, the gospel, than the, different than the gospel that isn't here, you should not tolerate that. What is to be preserved is the gospel of Jesus Christ more than unity. In other words, if you guys fire me, I might not like it, but God says that is a good thing. And where we preach the, the gospel according to the scripture, you, we should all be encouraged, right? We should encourage it. We should encourage the teachers. <clears throat> okay, that's led by the apostles. That's the fourth aspect. The fifth and final aspect, the church is to be a praying people. <clears throat> we Christians are a dependent people, aren't we? Christians preach a message that we are saved by Jesus Christ. In other words, we can't save ourselves, so we actually need to rely on the one who came to earth to save us. God became man to save us. Totally a message of our dependency on something outside of ourselves. We also pray, uh, we see here in the mission too, we are dependent on the Holy Spirit. We can't fulfill the mission on our own power, so we need divine heavenly power, clothed with heaven's power, in fact. And then here we also see that we are dependent on the Father, praying that he would accomplish his will. And so we see this as we track uh, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, example, which, of course, we're going to get to. Um, we see that the people are dependent on the Father. And that's what we see the people doing. Even as they're waiting to be clothed with this heavenly power. Turn back to Acts if you're not there already. So you look at uh, verse 14. All these, namely Jesus' followers... All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So what are they doing in this, in this intermediate period, while they're waiting to be clothed from heaven? They're praying, they're on their knees praying that God would do what he in fact already said he would do. And amazingly, that is how God accomplishes his plans, through our prayers. It's just what he's ordained to do. He promises he's going to give the Spirit, and so they're going to pray for the Spirit. Um, so we see here that the people are a dependent people. And awesome that they're praying in one accord. In one accord. So we see that idea of unity that's also going to track through the book of Acts. The unity of the local church. Now this, this word in one, accord, in one accord, this could mean simply that they're gathering in the same location. It could also mean that they were just doing the same thing. Um, but... The commentators, you know, they note that in 4, chapter 24, or sorry, 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 24, this word is used to describe a united prayer. 
a united prayer. And then later on in Acts chapter 15 verse 25, this word is used uh, to basically say that the believers made a united decision. A united decision. So it means more than that they're just gathered at the same location. It means more that they're just doing the same thing. It has more to refer to this unity, this togetherness that is so necessary for the church to survive and accomplish their mission. They were united with one mind, one purpose, one goal, that is to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. That's what in one accord means. There's so many things that threaten the unity of the church. And the book of Acts addresses many of them. So you got jailings. We got uh, threats. We got stonings. We got riots. We got church members lying to one another. We got Christians lying to the spirit. There's so many things that threaten the unity of the spirit. But ultimately, as we see in scripture, what brings us back together in the face of those threats to break up the church is a unity of mission to make God's glory known through the cross. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in that that we should have confidence regardless of whatever threat might come along. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, this is a guarantee, mind you. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a guarantee, a promise that we can have such confidence in. And I pray that as we look, walk through the book of Acts that we as a church would have confidence in that. And where we are not meeting up to where the, what the early church was supposed to be doing, I pray that we would be aligning our goals accordingly. So we see the early church is grounded on the truths of the crucifixion and resurrection. We see that the church is a people on mission. We see that the church is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and not on our own strength. We see that church is led by people, namely the apostles, and we are to follow the example of the apostles by preaching the same gospel. And then we also are to be a praying people, a people who plead with the Lord Jesus that even us here in Hacienda Heights, that his mission would be accomplished according to his grace as we go out from this place bringing the gospel, bringing the good news to others. And uh, so we, once again, want to do all things in all of our services to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven, Lord, how awesome it is that we can see um, the way that this early church lived out their life according to your spirit, wanting to magnify you and glorify you, being empowered by the spirit of Christ, testifying to the truths of Christ, depending on you to accomplish your will. We thank you, Lord, also that we can see what was on the heart of the apostles and on the, uh, the heart, hearts of the early church. We thank you, Lord, that we have their sermons, that we can see how they are addressing people and how they are bold or maybe even struggling to be bold as they hold out the gospel of Christ. So, Lord, we do pray that even now your spirit would empower us, that you would encourage us, that you even would rebuke us as a church if we need, and that you would further empower us so that we as a church might be preaching the gospel the gospel the good news of a crucified and resurrected savior do these things we pray here in hacienda heights in our locale in our workplaces in our families for your great glory alone in your name we pray amen